welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. Well, welcome to the podcast today, everyone. We're glad to have you with us. And um, lately, I've been having a lot of guests who talk about more clinical things, but I wanted to change it up today and have someone share a little more of a personal story. And our guest today is Dr. Rachel Pafiri. She's currently the program director of our PhD program in psychology here at Liberty University. And she's also an online psychology chair. So welcome to the program today, Dr. Pafiri. Thank you so much, Dr. Knapp, for having me. Oh, we're glad to have you. Um, I should tell the listeners, I heard you tell part of your story about your daughter and your birth, and it was mm-hmm. such a compelling story. I just said, I've got to get this on the air. So <laughs> so why don't you uh, just begin by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, and then feel free to dive into your story about the pregnancy with your daughter. Sure. Um, first of all, this is my absolute favorite story to tell, and, and anytime I'm asked to share it, it's, it's sometimes hard to believe it's been uh, 13 years ago, which it, it has been. Um, but just a little bit about myself, I am a, a program director and chair at Liberty uh, in, in the field of psychology. Um, and I've been in academics for over 20, 25 years. Um, I have three children. We live in southeastern Virginia in a, in a rural community. And uh, my oldest is at Liberty, and we're just uh, really enjoying the season of life we're in. Um, and like I said, this story I'm about to share doesn't really feel like it's been that long ago. But as I look back, it's been 13 years um, and it is a story that truly changed my life. It, it not only changed me personally, um, but it really did change me professionally and even how I approach um, my academics. And, and I'll share a little bit of that as we go on, but I, I'll just start by telling the story. Um, my husband and I, at the time, we were living in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, he and I were, were both Work. He was working for a hospital. I was work, working for a large research university, and um, we were kind of doing the thing. We were in our early 30s and kind of um, setting up life. We had two small children. Um, I was a, a researcher and an academic, and like I said, we were just kind of rolling um, and, and setting up all those things you do when you're early in life. Uh, and really in a sweet spot. Like I said, we had two kids, careers were going well, was really enjoying the work I was doing. And we um, found out we were pregnant with our third child and we were super excited and um, our kids were old enough to, to kind of go on that journey with us. So we were excited to take them to ultrasounds and that sort of thing. And it was one of those things, once you, once you get to your third child, you've kind of done this a couple of times, you're feeling like, okay, I know how this goes, been there, done that. Um, and really got to enjoy it. And it was January of 08, and we were going in for that that big 20-week ultrasound where you get to find out if it's a boy or a girl and um, all that fun stuff. And we actually had decided we weren't going to find out. We already had a boy and a girl, and we thought it'd be fun to to add a little bit of excitement and and not knowing until uh, the child was born. Little did we know we were about to get a lot more excitement than just a, a gender reveal. Um, but we took our, our two children with us, and um, again, having been through a couple of pregnancies before, um, I could tell pretty quickly that this one was different. Um, and we were doing the, the ultrasound, and, and the nurse was starting to point things out on the screen to our 
two other children, and then I just noticed the demeanor in the room change. And nothing was really said, but um, it wasn't as it had been in the past. So a lot of silence. Doctor came in at the end and said, you know, we, um, there's just some, some odd things on the screen. I'm sure it's the screen, not a big deal. Like, it, it's got to be the machine. Um, we we want to send you downtown and, and let you get a, a second one at the larger hospital. And um, it's just not a big deal. Don't worry about it. I'm sure it's fine. And I kind of, like, that little mother's intuition, I was like, I'm not so sure things are fine. Um, but they didn't say anything at that one. And I remember leaving that appointment and, you know, the, the pictures of, of ultrasound that kind of hang out of the machine. Mm-hmm. I remember them still hanging there as, as they ushered us out. And, and I remember thinking how odd that they wouldn't have given me those pictures mm-hmm. um, because they were right there. And they wanted to wait two weeks. And it was in those two weeks that I just really started um, learning what it meant to wait uh, um, on outcomes, if you will. And it really was a little precursor to what the next several months were going to hold. We did go to a second ultrasound appointment. Uh, we did not take our older two to that one because we, we had enough of a gut feeling to know this probably wasn't good, that we didn't want them there. And sure enough, um, after a long and, and sobering ultrasound, a uh, doctor came in, pulled up a stool, sat in front of us, and said things look very grim. And what he um, progressed with was just a, a list of things that were wrong uh, with, the, with the baby. Um, problems with the brain and heart. Well, we had no amniotic fluid. It just went on and on. Skin edema, um, no kidneys, no bladder, um, just, like I said, a list of things. And, and there's a point at which, and anybody who's ever gone through something like this, whether it be a pregnancy or some other medical diagnosis, you know that feeling. And, and even now, 13 years later, I can see it in my mind. I know that moment where your world changes and, and you're one minute things are good and the next minute things are not good at all. And, and in that moment... I was going to say, in that moment, you don't feel like a professor or smarty PhD, oh, anything. Your, no. your whole world goes down to that baby, no. right? No, absolutely. And not only do you not feel all that smart, but it doesn't even matter anymore. It, and again, anyone who's gone through something like that, some sort of immediate medical or other trauma, like all of a sudden what's important comes into clear sight and what's not important is, is just not important anymore. And nothing was, was important aside from what was going on right there. Um, not only were there a lot of problems with the baby, uh, the doctor said, and to make matters worse, and I'm sitting there thinking, can they get any worse than, than, than this long list? He said, to make matters worse, you have a condition. Uh, that makes carrying this baby to term very dangerous for you. Um, At a very minimum, uh, you're likely not going to be able to have any more children, um, but at the very worst-case scenario, you could lose your life. And at that point, their recommendation was that we abort her. Um, She was not viable with life, in their words, and I was at high risk. And it's interesting because I've gone through a lot of coursework and, and you take that medical ethics class as an undergrad and you think you know so much at 20 years old and, and you go through all of these medical ethical uh, situations where, well, what if the mother's life is in danger? Then is abortion okay? And, and I can remember, like, those flashes of memory from these classes came back where you would debate those sorts of things. 
And, and here I found myself right smack dab in the middle of a decision that was that hypothetical that I've sat in classrooms before. Um, we left that appointment and we were, again, we were in Baltimore and the Inner Harbor was not far from the hospital we were at. So we went and, and my husband and I were sitting there um, trying to process all that we had received and, and being left with a very big decision. I mean, they, their recommendation was that we abort. Um, and I remember sitting there, it felt like we were all alone in this restaurant. I'm sure we weren't. It was the Inner Harbor at noon. Um, but my husband looks at me and he says, you know, they're asking us to stop that, that beating light, you know, that light on the screen that is her heartbeat. They're asking us to stop that. He's like, I just don't think I can do that. And I said, I can't either. I was like, and I know everything they're saying. Like, I know the facts before us. Um, but we were pro-life going into this, and um, we're going to be pro-life coming out of this. And I believe uh, we need to, to choose life here and to choose uh, ultimately to let God decide how this is going to go. Um, we had a couple more appointments where they were verifying things. We did assert to the doctors what our choice was, that, that we, we hear what you're saying, um, but we really want to wait and see. We really want to choose not to, to abort her at this point. And I will, I will remember this point in the story for the rest of my life as well, because one of the physicians on staff who was working on our team, uh, who was in this meeting with us, um, she looked at me and she said, what are you waiting for? And before I could even get an answer out, she said, if you're waiting for a miracle, it's not going to happen. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, wow, how do you know? Like, isn't by definition a miracle something that shouldn't happen? <laughs> isn't that going against all natural odds? Um, so we thanked her and we said, you know, we thank you um, for your opinion, but we really do feel like we need to continue. What started at that point um, was a season of waiting to see what was going to transpire. Um, in, in God's grace, we did get some good news within about a month of that meeting where the condition with me completely, completely resolved, and that was a miracle in and of itself. The doctors were very surprised to see that happen. Um, and then we had another ultrasound um, that they called us in. Again, they started monitoring the baby. and. We had another ultrasound um, where we were just kind of going in, had a brand new ultrasound tech, and I don't think he knew what was happening in our story because he was just very glibly pointing things out on the screen. And he's like, well, look at that. There's the heart, or there's her head. And he's like, well, there's the amniotic fluid. I was like, excuse me? I said, the baby doesn't have any amniotic fluid. He's like, well, sure. He's like, it doesn't have a lot, but there's some. And then he's like, oh, and there's the bladder. I was like, whoa. I said, baby's not supposed to have a bladder. And he's like, what do you mean? And then at that point, he, he looked over at the chart, and he started seeing everything that was in it. And, and he, stopped, he stopped reporting things, and he got a nurse on the phone, and he said, you know what, get me Dr. So-and-so down here. So I've got Rachel Passeri here, and I think he's going to want to see this. So the doctor came in and started looking at the screen and, and at my chart and, and was not overly optimistic at this point. We're probably sitting at about 25, 30 weeks at this point. And um, he's like, you know what, don't quote me on this, but I'm having a hard time seeing all the problems that they say exist. And at that point, we got just a little bit of hope that maybe, just maybe, this was turning around. Um, we had one more pivotal 
appointment before the the final birth um, that was almost a dagger to the heart because at that point at that appointment where the doctor was starting to give us a little hope we started really feeling like okay this could really turn out um, and they had put me on bed rest and I was praying like there was no tomorrow that Lord I don't know if you will heal her but I know that you can heal her and, and I want to give you every opportunity to heal her, if it's your will. And I had no idea if he would choose to or not. But I knew that I had to give him the opportunity to heal her, if that's what he chose to do. So when we started having these appointments where it looked like maybe he was, I started thinking, okay, could we, should we be seeing the beginning of a miracle here? Well, we went in around probably 30 or 35 weeks. Uh, they said it was a tour of the NICU. Um, I thought I was getting a tour, kind of like you tour the Capitol. <laughs> like I thought, I thought we were going to go through and he was going to point things out and, and that was going to be it. But what it ended up being was more of a consultation. And um, they sat us down and they said, okay, there's one more thing we've not told you that we need you to be prepared for. Um, because you've really not had amniotic fluid this whole time, chances are her lungs are not developed. And while the other things might be okay, um, if if her lungs aren't developed, there's nothing we can do. And, and if they're developed some, we can help. But because she's had no fluid, they're probably not developed at all. So chances are she's going to be born, she's going to gasp for breath, and then she's going to die in your arms. And, and you just need to be prepared for that. And again, it's one of those moments where you're like, I don't even know how to process what you're asking me to process here. Like, how do you prepare for that? Um, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you at this point in the story. So, how did you um, handle that? Like, did you go talk to someone, or did you just sit and pray about it by yourself, or what did you do with that information? So, we had an amazing small group at our church uh-huh. at the time, and um, they were they were the only place there. That small group on Friday night and church on Sunday were the only places I went because they put me on bed rest. So I um, basically had to stay for, at home. I, I ended up giving my teaching responsibilities to my assistant at the time. And um, I, I basically stayed at home and went out to small group on Friday nights and church on Sunday. And that small group really was um, just that, that support through it all. And I looked forward to it. it. It was the one time I could really get out. The doctor said it was okay to go out a little bit, but not a lot. Um, and that really is uh, the people's support that helped me. Um, and the rest for me really was, was praying and reading my Bible. The Lord gave me a verse at the very beginning, which is Psalm 4610, which is a very familiar verse, which is be still and know that I'm God. And what is so personally important about this, this six months of waiting for me is at the time, and, and I still have tendencies towards this, at the time I was a very um, hard driving, in control, thinking I could create all sorts of outcomes kind of person. I mean, you're very type A, get it done kind of girl. And there's something about the Lord whispering, be still and know that I am God in the middle of a situation where you literally have to be still. Um, that slowly changed me over those six months. And I just kept hearing him whisper, whisper be still. And, and what's interesting, that, that be still know that I'm a God is the, the 
translation we know most. But if you look in the, the NAS, it's, it's cease striving or let go and know that I'm God. And it, and it really was my lifeline. I, I can't tell you how much I just kept saying to myself over and over and kept praying, Lord, I know that you're God here. And I have got to let go. And I have got to wait and see what you're going to do. I have got to let you orchestrate the outcomes here and not myself. That doesn't sound like um, the typical uh, counseling and psychology advice <laughs> to sort of let go <laughs> and just trust and be still. Like, like we're always trying to spin it some way with our, you know, yes. therapy and all. But that, that sounds quite different. Well, I think that's one. Well, I think that's one of the things I learned more than anything is that. There are many things in life that I do not have control over. And I do believe I'm supposed to execute control in certain areas. I was given a choice, uh-huh. and, and I had control over that choice. I, I was told to abort, advised to abort, and I could have chosen that way, or I could have chosen this way. And, and I can't tell you how much I believe in outcomes that are beyond our ability to orchestrate and that and that's where we found ourselves we found ourselves in something that i could not control the outcome now i could have if i chose an abortion but that outcome was an outcome that was going to be something that i could have manifested but i wanted what god wanted i wanted what he could create and that might not have meant that she lived, but I knew, and I could feel it over the months. I knew that God had good for me in it, regardless of what that good looked like. Sometimes the good he has for us is not the good that we're looking for, but I knew that I was being transformed in the process, and I was learning to trust him, and I was learning to walk the path that he had for me, not the path that I thought was best for me. And and again, I, I remember thinking about my, my children and, and early on, before my condition resolved, a lot of people would say to me, well, what about your other kids? Like, if you die, what happens to them? And I was like, well, here's the, here's the reality. The Lord will take care of them. Like, I have got to walk in what he has for our family. I have to walk in the outcomes that he wants for us, regardless of what I think is best. And I don't always understand. I mean, Isaiah tells us his ways are higher than ours. Uh, We don't always understand his ways. Um, At this NICU appointment, one of the last things they said to us was, because they didn't think her lungs were going to be developed, if she comes out crying, it's a good sign. And I took that little thing away. I said, all right. And that was about the last major appointment or, or moment in the story. Um, June 3rd, we, we went into labor. It was a little earlier than they were expecting. Um, and it was, it was kind of time to see what was going to happen. Like, what, what was God's plan in this situation? Mm-hmm. And um, the operating room was enormous. We delivered by C-section, and it was huge. I mean, it was like a big three-car garage size room. Um, everybody was in there. Renal was in there. Pulmonology was in there. NICU was in there. Like it, it was a teaching hospital. So students were in there. It, it felt like a hundred people were in that room to see what was going to happen. Um, and to make a very long story short, um, she was delivered by C-section and she cried so loud. And I remember laying there and, and right before she was born, I, I remember just praying, Lord, um, all right, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. So whatever it is, we'll walk in it. Like whatever it is that you have for us here, we'll walk in it. If she's going to live, we'll walk in that. If she's not going to live, we will walk in that and we will use this. I had written an email to my best friend saying, you know what, How, however this turns out, 
I want to use our story to bring hope to others. So if, if the story God has for us is that she doesn't live and we, we walk in the grief of losing a child, then I want to use that to help other people who have, who have lost children. But if the opposite is going to be his will, then I want to walk in that and I want to share her story, which is why I love opportunities like this to tell her story because there are other women out there or even men going through things that feel very much out of their control. Um, but God's got a plan. And she cried that morning, and I dropped her off at school this morning. She's 13 years old. Uh, she does have kidney disease, and she has glaucoma, so she has a couple chronic illnesses, but she is healthy, and she's alive, and she truly is our miracle. And I, I say often that the miracle of her birth is, is spectacular. It, it, just, it just showed to me that God has ultimate say beyond anything we can imagine. Um, but the miracle of my transformed heart and learning how to trust him with my life is, is the unseen miracle. It's the thing that maybe nobody really sees as evident as her life, um, but it's just as real. And like I said, regardless of how it had turned out on June 3rd, um, I was changed and I had learned how to trust him in the waiting and to give to him a situation and let him decide how this was going to turn out. Let's let's pause there for a second and talk about that, about the things you learn. Like you said, you learn to trust God. And um, obviously, it sounds like the worst time in your life that you were going through. Um, yeah. What are some of the other things that you felt like God taught you or you experienced or learned through all of that? But, but mm -hmm. I guess I guess trusting God, but are there other angles to that maybe? Yes, very much so. Because I, I, part of trusting him was abandoning my view of things. Um, my, my life verse from that point on became Ephesians 3.20. Um, in the English Standard Version, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to his power at work within us. Um, I like the message version of it. It says, God can do anything you know, far more than you can ask, imagine, or request in your wildest dreams. And what what I learned, and again, keep in mind at that point in my life, and, and I had, again, I still have tendencies towards this. I can think up some crazy things. Like I can execute big plans, and I love it. Like I'm a dreamer. I love I love seeing possibility. Mm -hmm. And when I read verses like Ephesians 3:20, that God can do exceedingly abundantly more than that. He can do more than I can ask or imagine. Like, that's pretty big in my eyes because I can imagine some crazy things. So I love that he can do more than I can even see. And, and that, is, that is the foundation of my trusting him. And, and it says uh, by his power at work within us. So not only can he, can he envision more and see more opportunities and see more for me, but he also has the power to execute it, which are two things I don't possess. I only have my limited vision of life. I, I can't see what's around the corner. I can't see the ministries he may have for me. There are people he might um, bring across my path that might need to hear my story. I, I can't see all of that. I can't see the ways that I need to grow sometimes, but he can see it. And not only that, I don't have the power to execute a lot. Um, I can do some things, but I can't do exceedingly abundantly. And, and so Ephesians 3.20 really became my verse in that season because I want to live in his power. I want to live in his 
exceedingly abundantly and not my own. Um, and, and I think one of the biggest lessons I learned is that I do not know everything, nor can I produce that much in and of my own power. He's the one that does the transforming work in me. He's the one that presents the opportunities. And he's the one ultimately, like it says in Ephesians, that has the path for me to walk. Um, he has plans for me. He's, he has ways for me to be productive for him that I didn't even know were possible. So when I look back at being 32 and, and working at a large research university doing the thing that was my plan, I had no idea he had an even bigger plan. And, and for me, that meant for a period after that, I did step away from academics a little bit. I became very active in the local church. I had the opportunity to share her story a lot. Um, my best friend and I have written Bible studies, and we've done retreats, and, and really helped people uh, through ministry, which was different than the work I was doing in academics. And then just from the, by the grace of God, he's, he's restored academics to me recently by allowing me to work uh, at Liberty and really combining the two. And it, it is. It is exceedingly abundantly more than I could have imagined when I was 30. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Prefiri. Um, you, you know that we have some listeners to the program here who come from a Christian background and some that don't. And you're obviously okay. sharing your faith here in a lot of ways. And I'm just... I'm just wondering, as you're saying all this, like how a person who doesn't come from a Christian background is hearing everything that you're saying. Like, like I wonder how your experience going through this crisis with the birth of your daughter um, and how you handled it and coped with it, how that might differ from, say, a person that doesn't have that relationship with God. Have you have you encountered that before with friends that you've met or? Or different people, like maybe even that nurse and the first nurse who said, there's mm -hmm. no hope, abort this baby. Like, have, have you encountered people that struggle with the same types of issues as you, mm -hmm. but they don't have the mm -hmm. same faith as you? I have actually had lunch about a year after she was born with a colleague at the time, and they had had a medical crisis, and, and, um, and he, he said, he's like, you know, we prayed and we didn't get an outcome. How do you explain that? And, and it was a very abrupt question, and I could tell there was a lot of anger and, and bitterness in his experience. And, uh -huh. and I did my best to kind of share um, from my perspective, looking back, I wish I had done better in my answer, but I was a lot younger then. But um, I have seen it, and, and it reminds me just of just even the ways that we see how, how Jesus interacted with people in the New Testament, um, so often it was testimony that, that drew people to, to Jesus and, and what, what they had experienced. And, and ultimately, I feel like when I share this with those that may not have the same faith as I do, um, this, is, this, is, this is how I experienced God, and this is how I felt him draw him to me in this experience. Because before that, while we went to church, I, I, I I'll be honest, it's not as if I wasn't living full out kind of sold out to him. I was, I was living my life in a pretty um, kind of secular, career-oriented kind of way. I, I was living in the world. I mean, nothing particularly bad or heinous, but I was not really following after Jesus um, the way I am now. And I feel like it was in that circumstance that the Lord really became real to me. Um, and Jeremiah says, um, you will seek him and find him when you seek him with all of your heart. And I feel like he is waiting for anybody out there who is, might be listening and maybe doesn't believe per se. Um, I pray that, that this story can cause you to maybe approach him and say, all right, Lord, are you, are you real? 
Like, are you are you truly uh, who this lady says you are? Is this are you really the creator of the universe? Are you really the one that has all power to create create outcomes that we can't see? And he's faithful. Um, when we draw close to him, he will. Um, and it's it's a beautiful journey. And he did it with me because I was not in a place where I deserved him to show up erratically in my life. He just chose to. And and through it, I got to know him a lot more. So my I guess my answer to that, to anybody who might be listening who doesn't um, believe in God or Jesus or anything that I'm saying here, um, is that he is real. And if you if you search for him, he'll show himself real to you. And um, and it's beautiful. And he's full of grace and, and slowly uh, pulls you along to, to learn more about him. And that's what he did in my life. Yeah. You know, what you're saying reminds me of another verse, <laughs> going back to the Bible and all in Job 42, five, when Job talks, Mm -hmm. he says, um, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. you. And so it's like, that's sort of a summary of that book in the Bible where he, he, he gets all these illnesses, his kids die, he loses all his possessions and he goes through this horrible experience. And yet at the end he says, but now my eyes have seen you. Like I've had this major, like yeah. experience with God because of this horrible stuff. And, and that sounds similar to you. Yes, absolutely. And I love that verse because it is, it's like, I thought I knew you, but now I really know you. Now I've really seen, and that really is my experience. And I can say that just like Job did. I thought I knew, uh, but now I really do. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, well, there's different angles to this. Obviously, we're talking about what you've learned about God, but I'm getting the the vibe here that you sort of learned a lot about yourself in this whole process mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> so why don't you give the listeners a feel for maybe what you learned about yourself or learned about your faith or whatever? Mm-hmm. What, what happened? One of the... I think one of the, the most interesting things that I learned about myself, and I think anybody... Um, I think any scientist who is um, honest with themselves, so the more they research things, the more they learn, wow, I don't know very much. And, and I very much experienced that. I think what um, really struck me most as I look back on this situation is when we're sitting in January of 08, um, the physicians were, were certain they knew what was going on. They were certain they knew what the outcome was going to be, and they were certain they knew what the the way we should go was. Um, and there's a verse in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 2.5, and it says, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Um, and what I love about that verse is we were at a hospital that was very good. I mean, it's fabulous hospital, one of the best in the world. And um, as a researcher, it's my job to understand phenomenon. I mean, that's, that's what I was drawn to as a graduate student. I love tearing apart concepts. I love trying to predict things. If you think about the scientific method, you're, you're trying to explain so that ultimately you can what? Control. I mean, that's the last step in the, in the scientific method. And, and being a scientist is all about knowledge and, and learning more. And and what's interesting is while I was personally changed by this experience and it changed the trajectory of my life, it changed some of the doors that the Lord opened for me, um, it also changed how I've done my work because as a researcher, 
I think it's very important to be very humble to the process and very humble and realize I don't know everything and I won't know everything and I can study and I can do research and do studies and I can do my best to put together theory, but ultimately there's a lot we don't know. And I think it's important to the decisions we make. And again, to, to infuse my faith again, when you, when you look at what they thought was going on, that was human wisdom. And it was not exactly what God had planned. And they weren't wrong. I mean, biologically and naturally speaking, it was bad. I mean, it really was. I saw the ultrasounds. I reviewed it myself. Um, trust me, I researched it. So I knew, I knew it was just as bad as they could see. But again, it was back to limited uh, perspective. And, and God does want more for us. And I think if I've learned anything personally about myself is that I've got to be very humble with my own knowledge and realize that my perspective is based on now. It's based on what I know so far. And, and there's, there's more out there than I know. And, and it really has, it's almost freed me up even as a researcher because I can, I can very humbly present things and say, you know what, this is what we think now, but it might not be accurate. And, and we know from science is always building upon itself and we're getting a clearer and clearer picture of things as we, as we research things. That's great. Uh, yeah, there's. It's funny the people I meet in life who seem to be the smartest are the ones who are humble about what they don't know. Because <laughs> the more you know, yeah. the more you realize you don't know. So that, you that, don't that's, know exactly. That's neat. You know, uh, it, it's making me think as you say all this that um, even though you're sharing your faith, which some people relate to and some don't. Everyone listening, though, goes through hard times. I mean, it could be the yeah. COVID thing, yeah. which we all talk about ad nauseum, <laughs> you know, or it yeah. could be some other difficulty or health crisis or career problem or whatever. And so everyone listening can relate to hard times. It's just yeah. we all handle it differently depending on where yeah. we start from. So um, if for the listeners out there right now who maybe are going through a hard time of some sort, um, maybe they're in a stage of waiting like you were, just learning to wait. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're struggling to trust God or, or, or something. What, what would you say to them when they're in the middle of that hard time? Mm -hmm. More than anything, and, and even research in positive psychology shows this, um, it is so important to hold on to hope, to, to hold on to that belief that it can get better. Um, and again, we, we don't always know what that better might look like, um, but back to my faith, God is a God of hope, and he's in the process of, of redeeming um, his creation, and, and we can, it can be better than it is now. And, and I think more than anything, in any hardship any of us go through, if we don't keep striving towards better, to believing that there's hope and there's good that can be found in this, um, we'll give up. And if we give up, we won't, we won't reach what that could be. And like I said, if, if she had passed, and I had already started thinking this towards the end of the pregnancy, like I wanted to be able to use it. I wanted to be able to sit across the table from somebody and say, I know exactly how you're feeling. Like, I, I have been through it. One of the, the beauties of hardship and being vulnerable with our hardships is that that's where we connect. 
We, we connect with another person when we've also felt the pain and the sting of loss or rejection or, or waiting. Um, I have a number of people who will come to me. Uh, we got the opportunity to tell her story on a, a television program and different, different radio programs and stuff. So I'll have women from all over the world find me on Facebook or reach out through some other means. And, and they just want to know, okay, how did, you, how did you wait? Or how did you keep going? Or did you feel this? Or did you feel that? Or, and what I love is I have the experience to be able to say, let me put some words around which you're probably having a hard time sharing because I know what you're feeling. And as I've processed it now, a little removed from it, this is how, this is how I would describe it, or this is how I got through. And um, if you are going through something that you just don't feel like you're going to make it, um, find some truth speakers, find some people who can help you walk through it with you, that can speak truth back into you, that can speak hope and life and, and keep you keep you moving um, because there is better to be had. Um, but you just got to keep walking towards it and believing um, that, that it can be better. You know, that's funny. That reminds me of, of so many of the people I've worked with over the years in my private practice. Um, some suicidal clients, for example. It, most mm-hmm. suicidal clients I've ever met with, they don't want to die. <laughs> they just want it to get mm-hmm. better. And they only want yeah. to die when they give up on the hope you're talking about. Like if they believe it can't get yeah. better, then suicide yeah. seems like a logical good option. But if they believe yeah. there's a chance, just a sliver of hope that it might get better, they don't want to die. And yeah. so I think your advice is so hitting the nail on the head. That's, that's so true. Um, mm-hmm. well, by the way, you mentioned just now that um, sometimes, you know, listeners who've heard you share the story in the past have wanted to get in touch with you. Um, do you want listeners of this program to, be, to have an ability to get in touch with you about what you've shared? Oh, I would love it. Absolutely. Well, how how would you like them to it. go about that? Um, well, we actually, we've not blogged on it in a while, but we do have a website. It's called afterthemiracle.com. Um, and you can, you can contact me through there. Um, obviously my Liberty email address is is a possibility as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love hearing from people. Um, I love being able to share anything I can. I, I have a very firm belief um, in sharing our stories with one another because I think, uh, again, I think it's how we connect, but I also think it's how we help each other. And um, I feel like if I've got to go through it, you know what? I, I am an open book. I will share anything with you. You can have at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, would, I would love to help folks. Um, it, it brings purpose to our pain to be able to, to share with somebody else who's going through things. So I uh, happily invite anybody to reach out if they'd like to. Okay. Well, I always end the program, or I try to, by asking the guests if there's anything else that they want to share that I haven't asked about yet. So let me let you think about that for just a second, but remind the listeners your website is afterthemiracle.com. So check, check that out if you want to speak to Dr. Rachel Perfiri. Mm-hmm. So any, any final thoughts, anything you want to share with a final thought with the listeners? The only thing I can think of is, first of all, thank you for, for having me on. It is, it's just a joy to be able to share her story. Um, it is it's so important for us, again, I've just said it, to share with each other what we've been through and to show each other that, that good is coming and, and we can find hope. 
um, in the midst of trials, after trials, and it, and it really is those trials that build in us our character. Um, there's a verse in James right at the beginning that says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of any kind, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And, and it very much is true. It does not feel it at the time. <laughs> Nobody going through trials wants to be told that um, you can find joy in it. But looking back, um, there's so much growth that comes from it, and there's so much good that can be done with it. And I believe we're called to, to help each other out. And so if you are struggling, this is the last thing I'll share, if you're struggling in a season of waiting or, um, or medical diagnosis like we went through that is um, kind of rocked your world a little bit, um, I want you to, to just remember that good can come out of it, that God can help you find the good in it, that it will likely be far more amazing than you could even imagine, but it's there for you. Um, and it's um, this season that you find yourself in will not last forever, and, and better is coming. That's a great final word. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the program today, Dr. Perfiri. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. Well, listeners, just uh, remember, afterthemiracle.com is her website, and you can speak with her if you'd like to. And thank you for joining us today on the Mental Healthy Podcast. We're glad to have you. And uh, tune into the website and sign up, and you'll uh, get some more interesting podcasts coming your way soon. So thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com. Thank you.